from Ephesians. We'll start chapter 4 next year, probably the second week of next year. Time will tell. But we'll be in Luke chapter 2, part of the passage that we just read a moment ago. If you're using a pew Bible, you will find that on page 857. I'm going to read out of the Christian Standard Bible this morning. For reasons that will become obvious in a little bit. Uh, I like talking about the Bible, so let me talk about the Bible before we actually go to Luke chapter 2. If you ever have a, any, like, you want somebody's opinion on, the, on any Bible translation, I am more than happy to share an opinion. Uh, depending on what you're looking for, you know, what kind of a translation you would like. No English translation is perfect. They all have certain strengths and weaknesses. Uh, I don't know what your plan is going into next year, how you are going to approach the Bible, but uh, I would advocate for something more than just a haphazard uh, come-what-may approach, to have some sort of an intention, some sort of a design as to how do you expect to engage with the Bible going into next year. My own, <clears throat> my wife and I do it differently. There's no one way to do it. Uh, my own way of doing it is I, I've, over the years, adapted this colored pencil system where I color up a Bible, which my kids sometimes tease me that I still color at my age. Uh, it's gotten more elaborate over the years, though the Bible I started a couple months ago now, maybe, because I'm not always on a perfect track, but uh, I'm, I'm downplaying it because the last Bible took way too long to go through. Uh, if you're looking for a new Bible and you would like a study Bible, I've got three study Bibles that I, I'm not going to use, I don't expect to use, and, and I have them. So if you're you know, 15, 16 on up, they're really not for children. I don't think it would be hard for them to appreciate it. But uh, if you are looking for a study Bible, I've got two NIVs and one something else. Oh, one Holman Christian Standard Study Bible. So let, let me talk to me. Uh, I'm all about Bibles. There's Bible reading schedules on the back foyer counter. In our culture, we read left to right. So the ones that are furthest on the left, the one that's furthest on the left is the easiest. As you work your way to the right, they require uh, more reading to stay on track. And the one that's kind of in the back row is to read the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, all in one year. Uh, that's the hardest of all. So if a schedule would help you, Pick, pick one of those schedules on the back foyer counter. That's why they are there. Luke chapter 2. The setting, uh, we're assuming a little bit to jump into Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 1, you've got a setting that primarily focuses on Mary, who Mary is. You've also got uh, her relatives, uh, John and Eliz or, uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah, who are promised a child in their old age. He will be John the Baptist. Uh, he will be the forerunner to Jesus the Messiah. That's Luke chapter 1. If you go to Matthew chapter 1, you've got some background material that primarily focuses on Joseph. So, and then you've brought them together in Luke chapter 2. We're going to see both together. But if you want background, read the first chapter of Luke and the first chapter of Matthew. If you're like, I know that part of the story, give me more background, read the Old Testament. Because really all the Old Testament is background for getting to this point where the Messiah is born. It starts like this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. 
This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So I'm going to start off with two misconceptions which set the stage more clearly, and they're the type of misconceptions that no matter how often you may have heard what was what is misconceived, it's hard then to actually think that moving forward. We are so trapped by these misconceptions. They're not heresies. It's not that bad, but it's really not an accurate picture. For most of us, our picture of what is happening in these verses is shaped by our culture, and it really doesn't reflect what the Bible says. So, Misconception number one, where was Jesus born? We know Bethlehem, but beyond that, where was Jesus born? The version that we read in the English Standard Version, in fact, most English translations have something along the lines of he was born in this stable setting. Some uh, paintings from the Middle Ages show, so, show sometimes Jesus and, and his parents being born in, in a cave-like setting. Uh, it was a stable like in, in the back of a cave, uh, lit up by whatever kind of lights they had back then. Those are common conceptions. We, I mean, we have this setting right here of a nativity uh, based upon this idea of a stable. You've got another a nativity setting on the back foyer counter, which suggests a lot of the same things. This comes from the fact that most translations say because there was no room for them in the inn. Because there was no room in the inn, and it's Bethlehem, which is a town of uh, no great renown, because it's such a little town, it could hardly be better than like a Motel 6, or a Red Roof Inn, or maybe beyond that. But inn isn't even a good translation. So while most Bibles say there was no room for them in the inn, I like the Christian Standard Bible, which says there was no guest room available. It's not the same thing. I will explain why. The word in in the Bible only occurs one time along with an innkeeper. You don't have to turn there, but it's found in Luke chapter 10. So the same gospel writer on another occasion actually uses a Greek word that means an inn. And it's the story or the parable that Jesus teaches of the Good Samaritan. And there's a man who's beat up by the side of the road. And a priest walks by and doesn't help him. A Levite walks by and doesn't help him. And then a Samaritan sees this guy beat up by the side of the road. And he has compassion on him. And he takes him and dresses his wounds. And puts him on his donkey and takes him to an inn. And he gives money to the innkeeper to keep him. And he promises, when I pass through the, on, the, on, my, on my return trip, if I owe you any more, I will pay it. That is an inn. And you've got that setting in the parable of the good, 
uh, the Good Samaritan. That's not the word that is used in Luke chapter 2. Luke could have used the word if he wanted to communicate a Motel 6. He didn't use the word because that's not what is happening. In fact, he uses a different word, which is translated guest room. It's found in two other places in the Gospels. Both of those Gospels are recording the same event. One of the occasions is Luke chapter 22. The second is in Mark's Gospel. In both of those instances, Jesus has gone with his disciples to Jerusalem. Palm Sunday has come and gone. Jesus is going to die in a few days on a cross. But because it is Passover time, he sends Peter and John into the city, and they are to go to prepare a place for him to eat the Passover, celebrate the Passover with his disciples. And they go and they ask a man about a guest room that is prepared, and he's got it all prepared and ready. It's an upper room. It's waiting for you. He's anticipating, apparently, Jesus is going, going to need this room. That's a guest room. It's the same word that, that Luke uses in Luke chapter 2. A guest room, not an inn. So if, if, you, if there's some sort of a parallel between the two, then what happens is Joseph is traveling to Bethlehem with Mary... There is a home, maybe a family home, because that's where Joseph hails from. That's why he has to go back there. This family guest room is filled up with family. It's an upper room. It's filled up with family. There's no room for Joseph and Mary. Well, they, they might be able to squeeze them in, other than the fact that she's ready to have a child. And generally, when a woman is ready to have a child, she's not hoping the entire church is there. So... There's no guest room available for them. So where do Mary and Joseph go? How do we get to what is so often thought to be a stable? There's no guest room available, so where do they go? And the answer is found when it says, she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him tightly in cloth, and laid him in a manger. A manger is a nice-sounding word, at least in my mind. It sounds so nice, it sounds so wonderful that you lay a newborn baby in a manger. But that's not a real great translation of the word that Luke uses, because the word that he uses literally means feed box or feed trough. It comes from a verb to eat. Animals eat out of the feed box. Your dog or your cat eats out of a feed bowl. So she takes her newborn child and lays him in a feed box. I'm sure she cleaned it up the best that she could. And if there was some fresh straw or what have you, or some extra blankets or pieces of cloth, she laid it in there to make it as comfortable as possible. But it's a feed trough. But that doesn't sound like a great Christmas story, so we've called it a manger. It's a feed box. So because it's a feed box, there's the potential that animals are there. I don't know that animals are there, but it's in such a place close to the home that has the guest chamber where there might be animals there. It's kind of a call of a, an, an open front porch or deck or patio. It's very near the house or even part of it. Maybe there's even an overhang 
to protect from the elements, but that's where the animals would be if there were any, because there's a feed trough there as well. So those are the two misconceptions. Here's what happens next. It kind of depends on whether you're going to go with Luke's gospel. Both things are true. Luke's gospel records what happens immediately next. Matthew's gospel records what will happen a little bit later. If you compare the two, it looks something like this. In Luke's gospel, you've got a story of angels, shepherds, who hurry to the scene to adore the Christ child, to adore the baby Jesus. And I'm using the word adore. It's not in the text, but it's in my sermon title. Oh, come let us adore him. I'm sure with this newborn child who has just been announced to them by an angel, followed up by a a band of angels, they go to Bethlehem to adore the child. In Matthew's gospel, you've got a scene where wise men are traveling from the Far East. They come to worship and adore the child. So you've got two groups of people, two set of circumstances. This one happens first. This one happens probably months later. But I'm not on that text right now, so I'm not going to argue the point. But two different groups of people come to adore the child. It's interesting that Luke is a Gentile, and he writes about Jews, blue-collar Jews, low-class Jews, coming to adore the child. Matthew is a Jew, and he writes about Gentiles coming. So I would kind of expect it to be opposite. I would expect Luke is a Gentile. He wants to tell you about some Gentiles who traveled from far away to come worship the child. But he talks about Jews worshiping. Matthew is a tax collector. He's a Jewish tax collector called by Jesus. I would expect him to say, oh, and there were some other people like me, kind of outcasts of society. They were shepherds. They came to worship the child. But in fact, Luke talks about Gentiles, or Jews, and Matthew talks about Gentiles. In both cases, I think it's somewhat of a foreshadowing as to who's going to be receiving the gospel. Because in Jesus' ministry, it's not the religious crowd that is receiving the gospel for the most part. For the most part, the people attracted to Jesus are sinners and outcasts and the downtrodden and the oppressed and tax collectors. Now, there's some exceptions, but for the most part, it's people like shepherds that are drawn to Jesus. As you work your way through Acts, which follows up uh, the four Gospels, it's mostly Gentiles. The Gentiles are rejoicing to hear the Gospel, and the Jews are rejecting and persecuting Paul wherever he goes. So what happens... When Jesus is born, who's responding is kind of a a foreshadowing of what it's going to look like for now the better part of 2,000 years. Lastly, I think this speaks to the point that some people regard Christianity as a religion only for, if we start on the left-hand side, some people think Christianity, biblical Christianity, faith, religion, is only for poor people. Poor people that want to conjure up a hope that probably really doesn't exist. But you got to give them something. you got to throw the poor dog a bone. And so religion is for the weak and the oppressed. But the magi, these wealthy magi, speak to the fact that no, it's for wealthy people too. 
Other people think that the gospel or, or biblical Christianity, it's only for powerful people, and they use it to oppress everybody else. But the shepherds speak to the fact that, no, the gospel's for poor people as well as wealthy people and powerful people. Because God calls both to repentance. God calls both to faith. God calls both to worship him who is king of kings and lord of lords. No matter whether your background is mean and meager or whether your background is you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth. Both are called to worship this one who was born in Bethlehem. Let's go with Luke's gospel. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, shepherds, I'm not going to probably tell you anything that you haven't heard in the past about shepherds, how they were uh, not thought of well in Jewish culture, even though David, their most uh, heralded king, was a shepherd uh, before he became a king. But for the most part, shepherds, it's a, a dirty, crummy, low-class kind of a job. It wasn't a job where you aspired to be a shepherd. It was a job where somebody's got to do it and you need the work. And you did get paid. Uh, when I was growing up, I think I've told this story in the past. Uh, I grew up on University Street on the northwest end of Decatur, uh, the same block as where Pershing School is. Pershing School was a lot different back then. <clears throat> but... Uh, kind of almost, almost across from Pershing School, because we, we lived kind of back in the woods, and we would take these shortcuts through a neighbor or two's uh, yard to get to Pershing School when we were walking to school. There was a lady, I grew up, I called her Grandma Ray. She wasn't my grandma, but you know you're getting old when people like that you're not even related to call you, start, start calling you Grandpa and Grandma, you know? But when you get older, when you get to be that age, you kind of like it. Now, if it happens sooner than, like when people are giving me senior discounts before, I'm like, I don't get a discount. I don't qualify for that. Oh, well, we thought you, we thought surely you qualify. Now I'm at the point where I'm asking for the discount. I like the discounts. But at any rate, Grandma Ray, I remember going to her house. She was a terribly nice lady. She was a crossing guard for people crossing Pershing Road. Terrible accident that the Woodrums would know about, which they're not here, but... Um, she wound up accidentally hitting her accelerator when she meant to hit her brake, and she ran over some kids and killed them. It was, it was devastating to Grandma Ray. But Grandma Ray, when I was a kid, my sister and I would go there, and she would tell us stories about gypsies. And she would say, because she had gypsies in her home from time to time, and she would say, you have to watch gypsies like a hawk. They will steal. I mean, they will distract you over here and take something over there. And she would tell us these stories, and I would be mesmerized. And I don't remember a lot of what she told me about gypsies, but for some reason I remember her, her telling me how they stole a pair of her scissors. And she would just tell us these stories. That's shepherds. Shepherds had that reputation. You've got to watch them like a hawk. They will take things. They will do things. They will distract you. They will take advantage of you. That's what shepherds do. Just like that's what gypsies do. So... We've got these shepherds, an angel of the Lord appearing, the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they're filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold. Everybody knows I have a thing for beholds in the Bible. Uh, any, any of my favorite Bible translations translate the word behold. 
And this behold is kind of connected to three different things. It's, first of all, it's connected to the don't fear because of this behold. It's a good behold because he tells them not to fear. And then he tells them this behold has something to do with good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The shepherds are given three titles as to this child who was born in Bethlehem. The titles are Savior, Christ, and Lord. Savior, certainly in a sense that is beyond their wildest imaginations. Savior meaning deliverer a conqueror, a ruler, something to do with someone who has power to set free those that are oppressed and brokenhearted and hurt in a way that they won't understand that he's going to set us free from sin, death, and hell. But in their culture, deliverer just means the Jews have been oppressed. Right now it's the Romans. And good news, we've got a deliverer. This deliverer is Christ which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew uh, trans- word that we would know as Messiah. Messiah meaning he's not just a deliverer, he's the one who the prophets have written about. He's the promised Messiah. He's the fulfillment of what Isaiah wrote about, about what Micah wrote about. He's the one uh, that is prophesied even all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. He's not just a a new deliverer, a new Johnny-come-lately. He's the one God's been talking about all these long centuries. The promised Messiah, who's also the Lord, which is a term for God. That this, this deliverer, who's the promised one, isn't just another king, not just another judge who's going to deliver God's people. He, in fact, is the Lord. It's a term that they would have recognized, that we recognize as being associated with God himself. Now, the way Matthew puts it, when uh, Joseph is given some of this information in Matthew chapter 1, it reads, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The shepherds are told he's Lord. They recognize that is associated with Emmanuel, God with us. God is visiting us in fulfillment of prophecy. All right, the shepherds are given a sign. The sign is not that you're going to find a baby. Uh, The sign is not that you're going to find a baby in swaddling claws. That's what you do with babies. But the sign is the manger, because the manger is a feeding trough. The word manger or feeding trough occurs four times in the New Testament. All four are used by Luke. Three of the four occur in these verses in this immediate context. So Luke, three three of the four times that the the Bible ever uses the word occur in this specific situation. And the reason why is because that is the sign. Uh, In our culture, if a mother has a baby and lays it in a feeding trough, somebody's calling DCFS to investigate because you don't put babies in your animal's feeding trough. 
But Luke mentions this feeding trough three times because that's the sign. That's the distinguishing feature. That what, that's what makes this baby so easy to identify who puts a baby in a feeding trough. Except that Mary does. John Calvin has a quote, it's in your bulletin, where he, uh, he picks up on this, he understands it rightly. So I'll read it to you, but it's in your bulletin. It reads like this. This was a revolting sight and was sufficient of itself to produce an aversion to Christ. For what could be more improbable than to believe that he was the king, the whole people, he was king of the whole people, who was deemed unworthy to be ranked with the lowest of the multitude. Who puts the king in a feeding trough? Calvin's like, that is so repulsive. But that's the sign that God gives how the shepherds will find this child. He's in a feeding trough. Verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Two themes in what all of the angels say, which surely they must have been singing since we've got so many songs about it. But two themes. The first theme is glory. The second theme is peace. Regarding the glory, if you want to add to that, you've got glory to God in the highest. Because all glory goes to God is to what is just happening right now. And God is reigning in the highest of heavens. All of the heavens that have ever been created can't contain this God. So glory to God in the highest for what is happening now in Bethlehem. But at the same time, you've got the counterpart is peace among those with whom he is pleased, and now we're not talking on the highest, we're talking on earth. So there's kind of three parallels. There's glory and peace. You've got God. You've got people on earth. And you've got uh, God's in the highest. Well, and I've already said you've got the people on earth. So those are, in this one event, God receives glory, and the people whom God favors receive this incredible peace. All in one event. Let's keep developing this. This peace, by the way, uh, peace is a theme that's common even in our very secular, postmodern, post-Christian culture. Uh, a lot of Christmas cards, a lot of people's sentiments are drawn to an idea of peace. But generally, in our secular culture, when we think of peace, we're talking about, you know what? Let go of your grudges. Let go of your bitterness. Put down your arms we should all live in peace. We should form a big circle and we should sing a nice, peaceful song because it's Christmas time. And that's not entirely wrong. But the peace that's really being proclaimed isn't just peace for people, among people. Ultimately, that peace comes from God. And if we don't have peace with God, if it doesn't start, with peace, with an altogether holy God to whom all glory belongs, what chance is there we will ever experience peace among ourselves? Peace starts with God. Our culture is happy to talk about peace on a horizontal level, but the Bible's greatest concern is peace on a vertical level. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. In Ephesians, we've talked about Christ. He himself is our peace. 
He himself abolished the wall of hostility that separated Jews and Gentiles, bringing them together so that we we could be brought together in peace to God. Because he himself is our peace. Verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Um, I've got one and two things that is going to happen next on the screen, and I'm not sure which it is. So I'm hesitant to push my button. I'm not sure what I should say exactly here. Okay. That's what I was hoping it wasn't that, but it is. Did the shepherd, is there anything else the shepherds could have done? I mean, angels appear. They're fearful. The angels are told, behold, don't fear. And I've got this good news of great joy. Could the, could the shepherds have done anything other than go to Bethlehem at this point? And the answer is yes, they could have. Because in Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells a parable of a great supper, a great banquet, where everybody, all the Jew, in, in, the, in the context, the Jewish nation, nation has been invited to this great banquet. And now the word goes out, come, everything is ready. It's all ready. And they're like, yeah, I just bought a new car. I really want to drive my new car. For them it was whatever kind of cattle they had. Somebody else, well, I just got married. I can hardly come to the great banquet. I mean, I just got married. And the third guy just bought a piece of property, and he wants to go check out his piece of property. They're all making excuses. And in the parable Jesus tells, it's in light of the fact that it's kind of an awkward situation where Jesus is eating with some Pharisees, at least partly Pharisees, and one guy because of this awkward situation, stands up and says, to, to kind of, uh, to kind of, because there's this tension because of what Jesus has already said, that's kind of like unsettling to people. You don't say that in a religious crowd. It doesn't tend to go over well. And so he's kind of wanting to change the subject. And this Pharisee says, uh, Behold how wonderful it is when we all eat in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, let's talk about that. Because the word's gone out. And all I hear is excuses as to why you can't come. So the shepherds, if they were in Jesus' parable, they would have said, well, we can't leave now. We got sheep. Some of them are new. Some of them need sheared. Some of them got to be taken to uh, lead them by quiet, still waters. Some of them got to go out to pasture. Who knows what all they got to do with these sheep? There's all kinds of work to do. But they drop everything and say, let's go. Drop everything to go. It says to see this thing that has happened. Not if it happened. They've, already, they've got faith. It happened. We were told. We're going to go see exactly what it looks like. Because we were told. And you contrast that with in Luke chapter 24. You've got some women going to the tomb of Jesus to anoint his body on, on the third day. And they find the stone rolled away, and an angel speaks to them and says, why are you looking for the the living among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. And they go rushing back to the disciples. And they're like, you're not going to believe this. He's risen from the dead. And and it says in Luke's gospel, these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up to go see. He's like, he didn't go, oh great, he's risen. He's like, This is crazy talk. But look, 
You got to calm these women down. I'm going to go see what happened. The shepherds aren't going to see if it happened. They're going expecting that it did happen because that's what they were told, which is a remarkable thing. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it were wonder, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. They made known the saying. Uh, the question here is: Is this a little premature? I mean, all we're talking about now is a baby, like hours old baby. Is it a little premature to say? Good news of great joy unto us is born this day in Bethlehem. A, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He's a baby right now. But God is, is fulfilling his word and his promise. And the shepherds repeat the gospel story, though we've only got a baby right now. There's a sermon I used to preach before I came to this church, and I've mentioned this before, and I've still never preached it here. But when I was with a Rural Home Missionary Association, uh, and I was trying to raise support, and we didn't get very far, which is one reason why I'm here, so it all worked out really well. But uh, one of the sermons I used to preach when I would go to different churches, because you didn't want to invent a new sermon every place, you kind of figured out what seemed to go pretty well, and, and you became more familiar with it, and I was pretty new. So uh, one of the sermons I used to preach when I would go to these different churches was, God wants nothing from you. God wants nothing from you because God gets the most glory. when he, The more nothing God has, the more glory he gets. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth out of, we call it out of nothing because he gets all the glory. He didn't start with anything. He did it out of nothing. Well, I would use the story in, in Kings where I think it's Elijah, but sometimes I get Elijah and Elisha mixed up. It's been a while since I've been there. But uh uh, there's a poor widow who's ready to eat her last meal with her son. And Elijah says, go gather all the vessels you can, empty vessels, and we're going to start pouring some oil. It's only limited by how much nothing she has. The more empty vessels she has, the greater the miracle is. So she gathers a bunch of vessels. I hope she, I hope she covered every square inch of that house that she could. Because they start pouring, and every one of those vessels fills up. The more nothing there is, the more God can do with it. God starts with this, this gospel message of great joy, which will be for all the people. But it starts with what is almost nothing, a most helpless infant laying in a feeding trough. And God gets all the glory. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Eventually, you have to go home. They can't follow Joseph and Mary around the rest of their lives. They do have a job to do. And so eventually they return, but they're still glorifying and praising God. How long do you think that lasts? I want to believe that this was such a life-changing event, they never stop glorifying and praising God. I want to believe that they are always making known the same that have been told them, no matter how many more years they had left on this earth. They're telling people about this story, about this child, and they're glorifying and praising God that he revealed that truth to them while they're tending sheep in the middle of the night. Um, John Calvin has something to say about this as well. 
it's kind of convicting. I don't typically read John Calvin. Uh, he's a brilliant writer. His Institutes of the Christian Religion, and as young as he was when he wrote it, is just mind-boggling how brilliant the man was. So I partly don't read him because it's so, uh, it makes me feel so inadequate. Uh, Martin Luther's a German. He's a little bit more gutsy, and he says things, yeah, that's the kind of, that's how I think, Luther. Uh, Calvin is much, much higher, much more proper. But Calvin says this, which I found very convicting, and it's on this thought that the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they'd heard and seen as it had been told them, and we're talking about it, a baby. Calvin, their zeal in glorifying and praising God is an implied reproof of our laziness, or rather of our ingratitude. If the cradle of Christ had such an effect upon them as to make them rise from the stable and the manger to heaven, how much more powerful ought the death and resurrection of Christ to be in raising us to God? They are so excited about a baby born in a feeding trough They're telling everyone they know, and they're praising and glorifying God. Friends, church, we're on the backside of the cross and the resurrection. And I can think of all kinds of reasons why it's not quite right. And John Calvin says, that's not just lazy, that's that's ingratitude. And finally... Between the two incidents or reactions of the shepherds, we have Mary treasuring up all these things and pondering them in her heart. I think those, those three responses are pretty much what Christians ought to look like, right? On one hand, we've got a message to share. We need to make known a saying, a gospel message, good news of great joy. We've got something to tell people that don't know. On the other hand, we gather to glorify and praise God. That's why we sing the songs that we sing. That's why we look into the scripture we look at. Because we have a reason to glorify and praise God, what he has shown us in his grace. And then on a more personal level, we should never stop treasuring up and pondering the things that God has revealed in his word and shown us within his church. All of that is the Christian experience. Treasuring up individually, privately, your own private devotion, devotional walk with God, gathering with his church. No excuses. I, I realize I bought a car. I realize I bought a whatever the new toy is and you want to use it. But what could be more important than gathering with his church to glorify and praise God for what he's shown us and revealed to us? And then we've got a message to share. What are your comments and questions? Rick. It's out of balance, right? Yeah. Which, uh, you know, that's why I think this is such a great package of what, what, what should we be doing. It's all that. It's all that. We're going to find that to be true in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 4 when we get to Ephesians chapter 4. You know, what is the purpose and the vision of the church? Uh, we've already seen what God has done for the church. Now, what does the church need to do? We'll find out that in Luke chapter 4. It will be very consistent with what's on the screen. Somebody else? Eve? Uh, the color purpose of the candles. Purple in the church represents uh, penitence, sorrow, preparation. Uh, so the three, the three purple candles of the Advent rep- 
are, represent how we need to prepare ourselves to receive the Messiah. We recognize we are sinners in need of a Savior. And so the purple represents our sorrow over sin, our desire for a Savior. Oh, oh come, O oh come, Emmanuel, those songs that we sing at Advent. Pink, the Christ child, Christ, Jesus is the white candle. He's perfect, he's pure and holy, so he's white. So this sorrow and preparation, right before Christ comes, our sorrow is mixed with joy. Because we know he's coming. Next Sunday is Christmas Day. And so our sorrow is turning to joy. If you take the purple and the white, you mix them together, you have pink. Pink, uh, yeah. The pink candle represents joy. Yeah. I mean, it's a little complicated because I did it what I call out of order, but we're good. Somebody else? And Christ is the light of the world. So as his, his birth draws nearer, the light grows brighter because now we have four candles. And when we light the Christ candle next Sunday morning, the hope candle, which is over here, the hope candle is extinguished. Because once Christ comes, we no longer hope that he will come. He's came. So the hope candle will be extinguished after the Christ candle is lit. Anyone else? Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.